electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Frank, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, from rate hikes to cuts by next year, the New York Fed's John Williams is floating that prospect in a new interview. We'll break down why it might be needed, how much is already priced in, and what that could mean for inflation and the markets. Former Fed Governor and National Economic Council Director Larry Lindsay will join us momentarily with his thoughts and to react. Plus, is the labor market actually stronger than it appears? And is the ADP survey capturing that better than the government's official data right now? Barclays says yes. Their economist joins us shortly to make his case. And we are at historic lows in housing inventory and at risk of a historic glut of apartments. Why that's pushing home prices up and rents down and how that will inflect an uh, uh, impact, I should say, inflation, wreaths and households. We'll get to all of that. First, though, let's get a check on these markets. Some real differentiation today, Don. There is some differentiation. And the outperformance is coming in that blue chip Dow Jones Industrial Average. It's been an underperformer versus the broader S&P and the Nasdaq Composite, certainly. But today's trade has a lot of those kind of value-oriented type stocks, ones in the blue chip index outperforming. The Dow Industrial is up about 350 points, 1% higher. Uh, now, four companies are making up the bulk of those gains it's United Health, it's Amgen, it's also uh, McDonald's and Boeing. So if you take a look at some of those stocks, that's what's powering the Dow today. The broader measure, S&P 500, is at 4508, up about 30 points. That's right near session highs. We were up roughly 32 points at the highs of the session, up about 13 at the low. So a generally positive day, two-thirds of 1% gain so far. The Nasdaq Composite, the real underperformer. A little bit of mean reversion playing out, at least marginally. So for the composite, 13,945 of 35 points, one quarter of 1%. One reason why is because the second worst performing sector in the entire S&P 500 over the last week has been technology, arguably the most important sector out there, the biggest weighting in the S&P and certainly in the NASDAQ 100. Apple, by the way, among the only mega cap tech names in the red so far, following up on some of that downside momentum tied to its earnings report last week, down 2% right now. Microsoft, though, Alphabet, Amazon, and NVIDIA bucking the trend a little bit more over the last week to the upside so far today. Notable 2.5% gains for Alphabet. And the stock of the day, one of the worst performers in the broader S&P 500, has been and still is Tyson Foods, which is down 6%. And by the way, that's near the best levels of the day. It was down about 11% or so, tied to its earnings report. The meat processor comes out with earnings and revenues that both fell shy of expectations. They're also trying to increase some cost-cutting measures there, shutting down more chicken processing plants. They're facing headwinds on beef, pork, and chicken. The commentary there not sitting well with some investors, Kelly. So Tyson Foods off 6% right now. And again, it was off 11 or so percent at the lows of the session. We'll see how Tyson Foods shakes out. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Now that it's widely expected the Fed is done or almost done with rate hikes, the next key question is, when will they pivot? In an interview with the New York Times, New York Fed President John Williams says they might have to start cutting rates next year if inflation keeps coming down. 
warning if they don't, real rates will keep rising, and that's a problem. Joining me now is Larry Lindsay. He's president and CEO of the Lindsay Group. He was also director of the National Economic Council under President George W. Bush, and along with me as well as CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leesman. Welcome to you both. Larry, would you, yeah. I, 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 I feel like you're not the guy who would be rooting for uh, rate cuts at this point, but uh, you know about real rates and, and how restrictive we're getting up to 2009 levels here. <laughs> well, um, I certainly don't think they're going to be cutting this year. I actually think they're more likely to increase this year. And the um, uh, president is correct when he says that if inflation comes down next year, uh, the Fed will cut. Um, I'm not as optimistic as he is about inflation coming down, but you know, obviously if it does, they will cut rates. So... So you do think, OK, so what are we talking about inflation coming down to? We're about to get the CPI report later this week. And Williams, I mean, if we kind of back up from what he's talking about and say the Fed funds rate is now I'm just going to round up five and a half, then the inflation rate has to be below three and a half at least. Uh, you think that's where we're going to be this time next year? Um, I think the answer is we will see. Uh, the most important thing that's happening in the economy is the uh, solid wage increases. They are going to continue. Uh, earlier story mentioned uh, that they're probably going to uh, become more widespread. We now have sort of a standard 5% or higher uh, contract settlement. Usually that's front-loaded, which means you're going to have more cost pressures uh, in the short run. The other thing I think that's important is that no matter what the Fed does, the long end of the curve is going to continue to rise in rates. Uh, by the end of 2024, I would imagine the inversion will be over, uh, maybe well before then. And we're going to see uh, the longer rates uh, up in the 5% uh, area. And that means that money is going to be hard to come by. All money is going to get more expensive. And it's the government deficit that will drive that. Wow. And that's obviously the Bill Ackman argument, Steve, that, you know, he thinks the 30 years go into five and a half percent. So there's this split between people who think rates are and that part is are going to stay you know, much higher for longer, kind of normalized like they did a couple decades right. ago. And those who think we could go back to something more like the 2010s. Yeah. I, I mean, there's an idea out there that that the Fed uh, will be not going back to zero. I think there are people who are, would applaud the Fed not going back to zero. Um, and I think there's an idea that uh, the curve is going to unin uninvert. What is the right yes. way? To revert. <laughs> what is somebody give me the verb there? You can write in on Twitter. I'll check it's it out. It's going to flatten. How about de that? De uninvert, <laughs> flatten, or actually go back. The long end will rise in any event. But I just want to be clear about what Williams is saying because the Fed looks at things in a different way, and I think Larry knows that they look at real rates. What if I told you that the Fed plans to cut its nominal rate, but there's a way to measure it that shows real rates actually increase? What I'm showing you there now is if you base that on the, their projection for PCE next year versus their projection for their nominal rate this year and next year, it goes down by three-tenths while they cut 100 basis points. Mm. Now, notice 2.4% real this year, 2.1% next year. And that is relative to what they believe the long run rate should be, so they 0. Think, 0.5. This is the real question. People think, well, what is the kind of normal real interest rate? Right. And they think it they, should only be they, half a percent? A half a point above 
the inflation the, the inflation rate. rate. So wow. uh, just so you, just to be clear there. We're way above using, that right now. Uh, well, we're, they are restrictive in their mind, okay? Now, Larry may have a thought on the right deflator to use there, should it, whatever it should be. But let me just point out that if you use their headline PCE number, they actually get, or sorry, core PCE number, they actually get more restrictive next year relative to their core PCE for this year. So Even the if they Fed, stop tightening, yeah. The markets, it, it's one of those things that I always wonder. You can fool some of the people some of the time in the sense that let's all buy stocks because the Fed is cutting. In the Fed's mind, it is not really getting that much less restrictive. Larry? Um, I think that's right. I think that's one of the reasons they probably won't cut. <laughs> and if the labor market continues the way it will um, or the way it is, then uh, I think that, in fact, those inflation numbers are likely uh, to go up. So, in other words, Larry, you, you, don't, you would take cuts off the table, not philosophically, but just practically. You just don't think the inflation rate's coming down that much next year. That's correct. Um, and I think we're going to see actually a little more upward pressure. Um, we've already seen the turn in commodity prices and oil. That's a small part of the total uh, inflation, but it works its way through the system. And again, it's labor, labor, labor. And there is no real softness as far as wage negotiations go. I think One of the things gonna... about the unemployment report or the employment report that uh, isn't getting a lot of mention is that we are now uh, up above where we were in 2019 in terms of participation by uh, prime age individuals, 25 to uh, 55. I'm not that there's anything wrong with people my age, but that's where the growth in effective labor supply has to be. And we're already fully employed there. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's going to happen. Can you write August 23rd in your calendar? Try. It may be the most important employment report that is not on anybody's calendar right there. That's when the government, the BLS, will announce the benchmark revisions for the year ending in March 1. Okay, And what that is potentially going to show is there's maybe fewer jobs out there. Now write down January. January is when it's going to tell us how many more people are or not in existence in the United States, okay? The last two years, a million people showed up each January. Not sure where they were hanging out before they showed up to be counted, but a million in each of the January. What is going on right now, and I can say from some experience on this, Kelly, the Federal Reserve is piloting the U.S. economy in a very thick fog when it comes to jobs. I have piloted a boat in the thick fog before. It is very difficult to do. You find yourself off course. You think you're a mile from the rock. You may be 100 yards from the rock. And right now, both the amount of people working and the, and the population are something that will be revised substantially. That could mean they're way tight or way loose. Well, let me add to the fog, actually, because speaking of gauging the labor market, uh, one of the big questions out there is whether Friday's jobs report, which came in light, just 187,000 jobs last month, are we should we rely on that report as much as usual or is the public and the Federal Reserve uh, misplacing that trust, especially after recent changes? Barclays notes that we've made to the private ADP payroll survey. They think that it may be a better gauge of the job market. And that report says the U.S. actually added almost twice as many jobs last month. Jonathan Miller is here to discuss. He's director of U.S. economics research at Barclays. Jonathan, I've, uh, yeah, you're going out on a limb here, giving ADP this much credit. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think historically we've kind of always looked at the ADP report as something that comes out a couple of days before for the payroll report, and we 
look at the number and see how it squares up with with the BLS, and then we throw it away. But the revisions that they've made to their approach last summer are pretty meaningful. So effectively, what they've made the report is an alternative measure of employment. And in fact, when you uh, kind of dig into the details of the ADP information, uh, their survey is actually comparable in terms of size to, to the BLS uh, establishment survey. They actually have a lot of features of that survey that are very good in, ter in terms of uh, measurement. They probably do a better job, among other things, of taking care of births and deaths of establishments, which is a big reason why we get the type of uh, uh, benchmark revisions that Steve was talking about a moment ago. But in, in addition to that, there's no missing respondents. Uh, it has quite good coverage of smaller firms and so forth. So there's a lot of things to like about that measure, and we think that uh, we should be giving it some weight. And in fact, we know that the Fed is. I'd like to kind of just get response here from Steve and Larry. Uh, Steve, first to you. There is a revolution that is going on in our ability to understand the economy through high-frequency data if we let it. It's not a given. It's not going to happen if we, don't, if we don't make it happen. But when I was instrumental in bringing ADP to CNBC more than a decade ago, it's because I was one of the people, and there were many of us, who saw this possibility of using high-frequency data and private sector data to enhance and sometimes better what the government is doing. Now, ADP has problems, and it's going to take time to, 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 I think, tweak it. But what they're doing now is what they should have been doing all along, not try to model the confusion that's put in for good reason by the BLS, but just tell us what your number is. Totally. And let us deal with it. And I understand the need for seasonal adjustment. But look, this is early days. This is a bit like, you know, Ford just came out with its car. The engine works, the wheels spin, but we're not really sure that it's going to create a revolution in how we work. But it's going to happen all sorts of places in credit card data. We have to bring it in. It's going to be a slow process. But what ADP is doing is the right thing. And I applaud Jonathan for his sort of very contrarian Absolutely. Um, uh, a piece that's because people have been dismissing it, but I don't see how you dismiss that dismiss much raw data well, that is coming out. And they say, and Larry, to you, but they dismiss it because it doesn't predict the, the Labor Department's report, which your point but, that but shouldn't be the right? point. Right. I, just tell us what the I number wanna, is. I want to hear Larry's response, but I've got a follow up to, to my idea. I Larry? Wanna, yeah. The more data, the better. We all know there are problems with ADP. We all know there are problems with BLS. Um, and, you know, to their credit, the Fed also collects a lot of anecdotal yeah. information. Uh, through their local boards of directors, for example. And I'm sure they don't disregard that either. I was just going to follow up that, Kelly, the market never trades actually on the truth of jobs. If you think about it, they come out <laughs> with a number. And let's say that number is 200,000. And the market sells off because it's weak. Three months later or two months later or a month later, it's revised up to exactly the consensus number. When does the market put back matters. the trade that it had? And totally. So, Anyway, I just think getting more contemporaneous data is, 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 is a step in the right direction. Although maybe Jonathan can undermine, under, underline the point Larry and Steve have made. Jonathan, if you think this would point towards, for instance, a benchmark revision of more strength in the labor market than we expected from the government's report, and to Larry's point, just how much more strength there might be in the wage figure into next year, whether that does leave the Fed room or require them uh, to cut or not. Well, all of these are pretty hard to measure in real time. I think uh, the benchmark revision, I mean, if you look at some of the early estimates from the QCEW, which is basically what the uh, 
what the BLS is going to use to do this benchmarking. They suggest at this point that there may be downward revisions, but boy, is it ever murky. There's a lot going on behind the scenes. Something that is perhaps not understood by a lot of market participants is that the QCW data themselves actually revise quite a bit. Oh, no. Uh, and that there's not... I didn't so, know so that. It's, uh, oh, my goodness. Yes. We're, talking they, they about, we're talking about wage data, by, just so well, they know what that report it's is. actually used to true up the bench, create the benchmark. So you're saying they, the thing they used to revise with, they revise themselves, Jonathan? Yes. So, oh so right God. now we know the QCW in the fourth quarter of this year, but there actually is a pretty systematic pattern up, of upward revisions to the QCW in recent years. So, uh, so it's something to watch for, and it certainly is. Uh, so we can't really can, bank on revisions along the lines that, that would be suggested by the fourth quarter data. Can I just be a little bit, um, what's the right word, a, a little nice to the, to the statisticians out there? They are trying <laughs> to measure the monthly change in a universe of 150 million yes, people. Yes, by okay? a change of a couple thousand. By a change of yeah. a couple thousand. So they're really trying to thread the needle every month. Over time, I think they get it right. They true it up to the tax receipts, more or less. There's a big issue right now. I was talking to Mark Zandi this morning in preparation for this, this uh, panel here. Um, when you have a lot of quits, it's possible that we're double counting jobs. Because one guy, in, if the quit ratio is very high and there's a lot of churn, may not have fallen off one payroll for another. That's a possibility. Meanwhile, if you look at the trajectory of job growth, because I don't know if you have the month-over-month -month payroll growth, the, 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 the population growth is supposed to, or the labor force growth is supposed to be 75 to 100,000. We are routinely doing 100,000 more than, than we should be doing. Where are these bodies coming from? Are they ghosts in the machine? You might want to, uh, to quote a police song or actually a famous phrase that goes back. Are these guys ghosts in the machine? Where are they coming from? And by the way, if this has been happening while the unemployment rate has been steady, then maybe the population growth is ultimately higher and maybe the Fed is wrong that the job market's not that tight. So, Larry, put a point on this for us. We'll give you the last word. I think that what's important here is what actually happens to wages as opposed to employment, yeah. because right. that is the driver of inflation. And I'm just watching wage settlements. I'm also watching what is the political necessity for union leadership. They have to deliver now. They haven't delivered for a long time. And if they don't deliver now, there'll be increasing question among workers about why bother with the union. So I think we're going to see a very aggressive union movement and continued upward pressure on wage rates. I know Steve and I are both like, but, I'm like, well, they're only a small portion of the right. workforce, so how but much macro could impact be setting, that have? They could be setting metrics for others. True. Like, like uh, real quickly, Absolutely. Real quickly, Barry Knapp wrote and he said disinvert. Disinvert. Not uninvert. Thank you, Barry. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Larry. I've been searching for that word, too. Yeah, me too. So. Disinvert. We'll use. And thank you, Jonathan Miller. We really appreciate it. Joining us from Barclays, of course, along with our own Steve Leesman. Still ahead, home affordability is nearing a four-decade low. That's just this morning. But with rents starting to fall, could there be a big shift in housing ahead? We'll talk about that. Plus, a new spin on the age-old debate of stocks versus bonds. The TLT ETF neck and neck with the S&P up until May. But now there's a 20 point difference between the two. We'll look at what, if anything, can bridge the divide. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at markets where the Russell uh, has now, well, I was going to say turn green, but it's unchanged. It's lagging, though, as the Nasdaq is up a quarter percent. The S&P is up almost two thirds of a percent over 4,500 today. And the Dow's up one percent, led by those four companies Dom mentioned. Ten year, 4.086. We're back after this. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. I'm Cindy Lauper. My psoriasis was all over, even on my scalp, which may mean four times the risk for psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix works on both. Cosentix secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis 300 milligram dose and adults with active psoriatic arthritis 150 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or one Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Dow's up 1% today. And check out shares of Amazon, which are now up 2% after Reuters is reporting. They are set to meet with the FTC next week ahead of a potential antitrust lawsuit that has some investors encouraged about prospects. Again, Amazon shares moving towards session highs or at definitely session highs. Meantime, turning to housing, home prices also continuing to rise. And that plus high rates is pushing home affordability to a 38-year low as of this morning, according to Black Knight. And it's the opposite story in rentals, where a glut of apartments and rental homes have now pushed vacancies to their highest since 2021. And rents have fallen back to pre-pandemic levels, rising just 1 to 3 percent, according to data company CoStar. So what do we make of this great divide? Let's bring in Andy Walden. He's Black Knight's VP of Enterprise Research. Andy, thanks. Good to see you. You bet. Good to see you, too. And, and I mean, I'm trying to think if it's unusual. It, it feels to me like markets are markets. And if rents are that much cheaper than homes, then people will flood into the rental market at some point. But maybe they won't because a lot of the millennial cohort was just looking for the lifestyle change of, you know, house in the suburbs and, and yard and all of that. Yeah, and I, I think part of it is there's there's no good options right now. You mentioned it earlier. Home affordability as of this morning is at a 38-year low, lowest since the mid-1980s. And, and rent's not affordable either. I mean, rent prices tend to trail home prices. They're slowing down a little bit, but you're still seeing unaffordable rents out there in the market as well. And so regardless of where you look, shelter costs are just simply expensive. Yeah, they are expensive now. But if you kind of look a year from now, it's pretty clear that while home prices might still be even higher, rents seem like they're going to be a better deal. Yeah, when you look at, at rental growth, it tends to trail home price growth out there in the market. And so what you're seeing out there in terms of rent prices is exactly what we've seen in the housing market over the last 18 months. We've seen that home price growth rate go from 20% down to effectively zero in May. You're seeing rents follow the, that same path. But what's interesting in, in June is that you've seen an inflection in the housing market and start to heat back up. And that's kind of our expectation as you look over the next few months. We're at 0% last month. We expect 2% home price growth by next month, maybe 3 by the following month. And so you're going to see that kind of reaccelerate as we move into the fall. You think up 3% year on year? 
Yeah. Wow. So what was yeah. the, you know, we talked last time and it was interesting how you said, you know, in 2022, we saw a big reset in some markets like San Diego, uh, but not all markets. And so where are we now nationwide? Where are these price hikes coming from? And, and are they kind of coming from everywhere at this point? It's, it's a little bit of everywhere. It's, it's not proportionate everywhere, but 60% of markets are, are up. And when you look at kind of where it's taking place, if you just look at June month on month, seasonally adjusted, the strongest gains are in the Northeast and Midwest, right? Those are markets that had been strong. They've got low inventory and relative affordability. So those are the markets that had been hot and had stayed healthy. But what's interesting about June is the Western part of the U.S., Right, so your San Jose's and, and Seattle's that had seen some of the largest price drops have turned a corner and are number two and number three in terms of price gains in June. And so you're seeing some of those West Coast markets, some of those pandemic boom markets, with the exception of Austin, starting to pick up a little steam this year as well. Wow. And why do you think that is? You know, as we hear these headlines, even today, Zoom calling people back to work and company after company, what's keeping those one time pandemic hot markets still hot in the, in the housing space? In inventory is a simple answer, right? It's it's all a matter of inventory. The reason that Austin is still cool is Austin is the only market that's back at or remains at quote unquote normal levels of inventory out there in the market. Some of those West Coast and pandemic boom markets that had moved back into balance and moved to pre-pandemic supply levels have done an about face and their inventory has fallen again this spring as, as sellers haven't sold. And so as that inventory has fallen, you've seen those housing markets start to heat back up. Yeah. And it's not until the 10 year drops significantly that we should expect a change in that, right? Yeah. And even when that 10 year drops and, and folks come back into the market, you're going to see uh, demand return along with that. And I'm more confident in the demand returning than I am at the supply. Right. There hmm. are some signs and, uh, and signals that folks are saying, hey, we'll we'll sell when we get to five percent interest rates. I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. And, and we've we've seen it take place on the on the demand side. We haven't seen it take place on the supply side yet. So it's there's still some uncertainty about when that supply comes back incredible the way that rate hikes have driven inflation in the housing market and maybe now to some extent in the oil market as well. It's maybe people would yeah. say it's textbook, but it's not what I was expecting. Andy, thanks for your yeah. time today. We appreciate it. You bet. You bet. Thank you. Andy Walden of Black Knight. Coming up for some stocks that's starting to feel like 2021 all over again, the worse their prospects, including bankruptcy, the better these micro caps seem to be doing lately. Can the companies turn these meme stock bounces into a real shot at survival? We'll talk to Kate Rooney about that next on The Exchange. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Rite Aid, Tupperware, and, and trucking firm Yellow, which just filed for bankruptcy, are all microcaps that normally see pretty low trading volume. We're talking less than 40 million shares on average over the past 30 days, as you can see on that chart behind me. But look at this. In the past five trading sessions, those averages have spiked, or in Yellow's case, quintupled. And all three stocks have seen their highest trading volume day on record in the past two weeks. What's driving these surges? Kate Rooney is looking into that for us. Hi, Kate. Hey, Kelly. So speculative pockets of the market are having a moment right now that really feels like the meme stock rally 
back in 2021. The action in these stocks coincides right now with total retail inflows hitting the highest levels we've seen since February. That's according to Vanda Track. And there's been concentration and concentrated interest in micro cap stocks like Rite Aid, Tupperware and Yellow, which you just mentioned. A few common threads here in these surges, like the original meme stock. We always talk about GameStop a couple of years ago. These are consumer names with underlying problems. They're micro cap stocks with small floats to begin with. That's a classic target for short sellers. And all of these names have about 20% or so of the available shares sold short. That's roughly four times the average stock, therefore setting up a potential short squeeze. Social media can also attract some individual traders to these names. There's also hedge funds that now monitor these forums like Reddit and then pile in as well. Third point's Dan Loeb highlighting this dynamic in a letter to investors last week, saying fundamental analysis is increasingly taking a backseat to monitoring daily options and Reddit message boards. Loeb not entirely quitting short selling, but he says third point will reduce single name short exposure. Not all meme chasing here, though, Kelly. The bulk of that buying I mentioned from Vandetrack talks uh, that they talk about this week in a note It's about broad-based ETFs and treasury ETFs, so it's not all meme momentum chasing. Kelly, back to you. I I guess, but they are having a big impact uh, with some of these microcaps. Kate, thank you very much, our Kate Rooney. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. Atlanta locking down its courthouse ahead of former President Donald Trump's possible indictment. Law enforcement officers closed roads after previously putting up orange plastic traffic barriers and steel crowd control barricades. The barriers will be uh, up through at least August 18th as part of what the county sheriff calls a protective plan. Two firefighting helicopters collided midair while battling a fire in Riverside County, California. The Cal Fire Southern Region Chief said the fiery collision killed three people on one helicopter. The Cal Fire Division Chief, a Cal Fire Captain and a contract pilot. The second helicopter was able to land with no injuries to the passengers. The crash also sparked an additional four-acre fire that was happily extinguished. Tesla expanding its customer base with a new product. The electric car company is selling a cyber truck cat house in China. Uh, The futuristic shape of the house uh, is inspired by the Tesla pickup truck. but it's made out of cardboard instead of stainless steel alloy. There's a look at it. It's available only on the Chinese version of Tesla's website. So you and your cat will have to wait. You know, the dog features, the dog mode in the original Tesla was always a big part of the appeal. I don't know about the dog mode. You, wait, do you have a dog, tie? No, I have two cats. So this but then is you very interesting the cat. to me. Maybe I'll get, that, get this for Pete and MJ, the cats. <laughs> See you in a bit. Coming up, the two or maybe three key reasons why Berkshire Hathaway stock is rallying today. Should you take a page out of the Oracle's playbook? Shouldn't you always? Those details are next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. The S&P posting its best seven-month start to the year since 1997. But you can also get some pretty decent returns these days in bonds and cash. Take a look at these yields on Treasuries. Six-month bills still yielding. There it is. Almost 5.5%. Same for three months. Even one-year T-bills, almost 5.4%. That's helped boost Berkshire Hathaway's recent results as they raked in more than $7 billion from their T-bill holdings. My next guests are fans of Berkshire 
and of bonds. Joining me now are Brian Weinstein, head of fixed income at Morgan Stanley, and Bill Stone, CEO, CIO, I'm sorry, of Glenview Trust. Welcome to both of you. Bill, I just want to start with you and Berkshire's earnings from its T-bill holdings. Apple's uh, share performance, better results at Geico also helping. Yeah, I mean, I think when you strip out, just set aside the investment results, investment results are obviously really important over the long run. But in the short run, you want to look at how their operating business are doing. And thanks to the particularly the insurance side and what you mentioned, the income coming off the T-bills, operating earnings per share grew at about 8%. And when you kind of put it into perspective relative to the fact that the S&P 500, the, you know, as a whole, is probably going to report a decline of more than 5% year over year uh, in earnings. So uh, a big divergence uh, with Berkshire there. Bill, what are your thoughts? I mean, if I asked you about stocks broadly, you know, on that seven-month run we just mentioned, what would you do right now? Or or would you T-bill and chill? You know, I think I would take a little, you know, page from the Oracle and, and you know, look for opportunities because that's always the way he is because it doesn't hurt you, right, to sit in T-bills a little bit. Um, you do want to get in stocks over the long run, uh, it, you know, um, so I certainly would stay on the more defensive side. What you did see or what we know so far is Berkshire Hathaway was a net seller of about $8 billion in uh, stocks in the second quarter. True. We'll find out next Monday which, what stocks those were. Right. No, that's a great point that they're selling and they're, you know, some of the most well-known equity investors of all time. Brian, let me turn to you. Maybe we can put that table back up. I see one-year T-bills at almost five and a half percent. And I'm salivating. I'm literally, I'm like, you know, back up the truth. What am I missing? Why, you know, if I hold this to maturity, am I really going to look back and go, gee, I could have gotten 6.3%? And if you do, you can put some more money into it, right? Right. I mean, no one has all their money in in T-bills, I hope. So I think you're right. I mean, that T-bill rate is very attractive. And what we've seen in fixed income this year, it was supposed to be the year of the bond, right? And that, I think, meant the equities couldn't go up 10, 20, 30, 40 percent. So it can't be the year of the bond. But certainly cash has done its job. I think what you're seeing investors doing is just what you said. Give me that cash rate and something riskier. But the stuff in between, yeah. eh, I'm not sure that's high enough rate. Yeah, I yet. don't know if the 10 years that attractive, yeah, I'm not sure it's you know, there. the 30 year. But it, again, I look at it and I go, if I'm holding it to maturity, look, you don't want to be in a fund where you can all of a sudden be down 20 percent. But if I'm holding it till maturity, is the opportunity cost okay? So the market, like, but this is where the stock market has been so frustrating because you'd say, well, okay, Kelly, you know, let's take the last six months. You could have two and three quarters percent, or you could have, what has it been, a 20% run in the S&P 500? No doubt. When you look again, if if we could crystal ball and say things are up 20%, you wouldn't need cash, right? It's not really the way it it works. So yes, people have buyer's remorse. They wish they would have bought more of the seven stocks that were up the most. Um, But I think if you take a real balanced view, cash is great. Money market funds have seen the inflows, right? So those cash rates are attracting investors, and they should. And then what you said, right? Listen, high yield and bank loans have also, you know, done a good job. They've gotten actually they've beaten cash, more risk, um, but you got a higher yield. It's that stuff in the middle where we're, you know, last week was an interesting week, right? We talked about the Fitch downgrade. We talked mm-hmm. about deficits. None of it's new. Mm-hmm. But the question I think investors are asking is, if equities can still have a return, and I know my cash is good, I know credit's good. Don't I need more of a premium for for things like tenure notes? And I think we have that question still out there to be answered. One more question is, how much of the these high yields on the short end, which Berkshire is benefiting from, they're one of the biggest creditors now of the U.S. government, but how much of the T-bill yields in particular are a result of the Treasury supply? They're right now, they're flooding the market with T-bills, as I understand it, in order to kind of drain money from the reserve, reserve, things like that. They're going to shift that towards the longer end. 
Um, how much do you think that's going to change yields across the curve? Listen, I, I think the answer is not as much as people want to make it sound, right? The truth is the T-bill yield is there because that's where Fed funds rate is going to be. That is pretty fungible. More or less, it matters a little bit. But that rate is really where, where Fed funds is going to be. I think the question for out the curve is not necessarily on supply, but if you're going to have a lot more fiscal spending, right, if you're going to have equities that do okay, growth and inflation are going to continue to be high, um, then investors are going to want a higher return out the yield curve. Supply matters a little bit, but we're not going to sell off simply because go look at Japan, right? Lots of supply, very low yields. Less right. central bank buying. In fact, central bank balance sheets are shrinking. Sticky inflation, cheap cash rates, resilient equities. I think it makes it tougher for the belly of the yield curve to have yields that are really low. Bill, I'll give you the final question then. When you look at the markets, broadly speaking, where do you see the most opportunity or the place that you'd most like to be right now? I think I'd lean a little bit, again, toward the more defensive side. You know, you've seen it today, the opposite of that, where the industrials are trading really well. I think the market's priced in a lot of good news on the economy, and and probably, in some respects, rightly so. We are clearly further away from a recession than most people thought at this point. Um, But I still think maybe there's some opportunity in, you know, the healthcare area um, to just kind of lean against it, collect some nice dividends, and you know, live to fight another day if, in fact, we do get a, a sell-off. Yeah, you know, it's like the, the pros are still a little, they're a little nervous, you know, not fully convinced by this one, I, I, I feel. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Bill Stone, Brian Weinstein. Thank you. Appreciate your time today. Still ahead, AI isn't just about disrupting drug trials or surgical procedures. It's also changing the much more mundane way doctors do their work every day. And it's a change that could reduce their burnout and improve the patient experience. That's coming up next on The Exchange. Artificial intelligence is now disrupting one of the biggest headaches in healthcare, paperwork. Medical notes take doctors and nurses hours every day and cut into time with patients, as we've all experienced. The National Bureau of Economic Research estimates that using AI for administrative tasks could save the health system two to three hundred billion dollars a year in this country. Our Bertha Coombs has this story for today's Tech Check, Bertha. Hey, Kelly. Yeah. You know, when you go to the doctors, you know that usually they spend a lot of time looking at their computer screens, typing into your electronic health record. But what we don't notice is that most of them end up finishing those notes and maybe send us notes back later at home. It's it's so common. It is called pajama time by doctors. Microsoft's Nuance unit has an AI app that they hope could put pajama time to bed. You don't look like you feel good today. Dr. Tashella Johnson-Foy starts patient visits by pulling out her phone. It listens in on our visit so that I can pay more attention to you. Are you comfortable with me using it? Using Nuance's DAX app has freed Foy from typing when she's seeing patients. The AI program writes her patient summaries for her, which has freed her from... Pajama time, which is should be the time where you're getting ready to wind down and go to bed. We're usually still charting and noting and doing things that are going to enhance the life of the patient, but not necessarily our own quality of life. 
At Baptist Health in Jacksonville, harnessing generative AI programs to help doctors and nurses fight burnout is a top priority. There's new economies of scale and economies that healthcare will be able to get into leveraging AI because you simply, like because you eliminate all the administrative redundancy and bureaucracy overhead and you allow folks to work top of license. Using AI to reduce administrative tasks could help hospitals cut total costs by 5 to 11 percent in the next five years, according to a National Bureau of Economic Research study, for physician groups up to 8 percent and for health insurers 7 to 10 percent, though the upfront investment isn't cheap. Cheap. It cost me X, but I just made my patients a whole lot happier and my physicians a whole lot more productive. Well, there's an answer right there by itself. But about that productivity, Dr. Foy says it shouldn't mean more work. Pajama time is now reserved for time with her family. This is about the doctor having a quality of life that they deserve because we're people too. So the newest version of the app, Dax Express, using OpenAI, writes up the notes instantaneously. Microsoft is working with Epic, which is the nation's largest electronic health record firm, on being able to take those notes and really leverage them in the EHR. Kelly, one of the things that they're working to do is to be able to write notes back to patients to do that. But, you know, they're not the only one who are trying to tackle this oh, sure. issue. No, hopefully everybody is, because from the patient experience, this can't move fast enough. I mean, it's amazing we're in a system that the patients don't like, that the doctors don't like, and yet here we are. How quick do you think the prospects are for a dramatically different experience? Well, it's one of those things that I talked to one doctor at Stanford and she said, this is like we've gotten the iPhone one. And she thinks this is going to move a lot faster than it has been to get from the iPhone one to the iPhone 15. But again, it's not just Microsoft. If you take a look at some of the others who are trying to get in on this market, Amazon Web Services actually has a, a health scribe. Also, Google Health has uh, MedPalm. And don't forget that Oracle bought the health records firm Cerner, and they have some projects with this as which well. Which also underscores what we've heard from analysts, which is a lot of this AI kind of revolution could benefit the big incumbents as opposed to these new startups. There are a lot of startups that are working with different companies and working at different points, but certainly you've got these big incumbents who have seen the writing on the wall and they've acquired a lot of totally. these companies. And they have the install base already. They exactly. can just fire it up. Bertha, thank you. Our Bertha Coombs reporting. Still ahead, what do Beyond Meat, Under Armour, and Chegg all have in common? They have results on deck. They're up between 20 and 50% from their lows, but despite that, they're all still down more than 90% from their all-time highs. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on all three names next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, and it's time for Earnings Exchange, where we've got the action, the story, and the trade on three stocks about to report. Today, it's Beyond Meat, Chegg, and Under Armour. Let's get right to it now with CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo. He is founder and CEO of New Street Advisors. And welcome uh, here on set, by the way, first Thank time. Thank you for having it's me. It's good to see you. So let's start with Beyond Meat. Shares down about 6% into the print today, up about 20% this year. That's not bad. Street will be watching for demand on the... I didn't know they recently launched Beyond Pepperoni. Mm. Uh, they've got plans on further price hikes. General consumer elasticity is always a question mark. Debt levels are an overhang on shares, which are down more than 90% from their 2021 highs. And in fact, 
The company is worth less than a billion dollars now versus its peak of $11 billion just a couple years ago. What would you do with this stock? This is a stock that you want to hold right now. I think there's a few reasons why. If you look at the short-term story, it's not as strong. It's not great. They have weaker consumer right now. They also have an area where they're looking at a situation with debt is, as you mentioned, an overhang for them as well. I'm looking at the long-term story for Beyond Meat. I think there is a long-term play in the food service side of their business. They can bet on and hang on the moat of the players that they partner with on the food side rather than competing on the retail side, which is a very, very tough position. Um, if you also look at this, I think shareholders could be diluted because they're burning cash, so they have to raise cash at some point, and that could be dilutive to their current shareholders. So I'd be holding and waiting for a lot of this to play out, Kelly. No, it's uh, impressive you're not a sell. I mean, we gave you three tough names today. So I have to, So this one's a hold. Then what about Chegg? Those shares were down nearly 40% on its last report, despite an earnings beat because they issued, issued weaker than expected guidance and warned that ChatGPT will have a big impact on its new customer growth rate. They haven't really rebounded since that report either. They're down more than 80% from their 2021 highs. What do you do uh, with this name? This is one we'd be cautious of. If you look at Chegg, you just mentioned the, actually the competition with something they probably didn't foresee, which is obviously ChatGPT. They, of course, went and partnered with OpenAI to create their own AI uh, function for their, for their platform. But I looked at something interesting in their report, which was that there's a million fewer uh, higher ed people, students uh, in school than there were over the past few years. Wow. And that trend is lowering. If you look at the, the growth story for the company, that's concerning to me if you're looking at the growth story, uh, because they obviously needed with their platform to have those higher ed students, obviously, of a subscription service. So, so I'm cautious on the stock. I think the growth story is a little bit shaky with those more competition and obviously less uh, of their end users on the platform. And we were, I mean, they were rallying earlier today. They had this partnership. They announced a scaled AI to develop proprietary large language models. But it's, I think, as you're saying, even with a competitive edge, this is just a tough market to crack right now. Yeah, 100% tough market to crack. If you're looking at the way people are consuming education now, there's just a lot more competition from social media, from different platforms, obviously, um, from from ChatGPT and OpenAI and other language models that will come out. So so I think that's going to be a big sticking point for them. When they have to wade through that, if management does a good job, it might be an opportunity to take a better look at the company. But for right now, I would, I would be cautious. On the sidelines. All right, so what about Under Armour? Shares are down more than 20 22% this year. And this stock peaked in 2015 at about $50 a share. It's under eight right now. International and footwear growth will be key, according to Raymond James, as the U.S. and apparel segments are still under pressure. That firm also saying they expect Under Armour to discount merchandise in order to clear its high inventory. That could hit margins. And the company just announced some executive changes at the end of June, including plans to shift the COO role to chief supply chain officer. But what a tough story this one's been. Yeah, it's been a tough story. And this one I'm still hanging in on. Um, if, you, if you look at Under Armour, as you mentioned, the last quarter was telling to what we could potentially see this quarter, which were margins were compressed and inventory up. And that's obviously not great. You don't want to see inventory up. And it's obviously uh, telling of what's going on with consumers right now uh, and how consumer demand is weakening. So, so when I look at Under Armour, the thing that I like about them, as you mentioned, the change in management. Kevin Plank did such a great job building this company up for over the last couple of decades. And now if we're looking at the new fresh eyes coming in and what the new CEOs really focus on is branding and positioning. I think that's where Under Armour could make a big change, right? If they're looking at who they're competing against, they do a great, the competitors do a great job of the branding. And I think Under Armour could do a little bit there on that side as well. But do you really think the stock's a buy or is this just a, I, I can't, I, I won't let go. I can't, uh, I can't is, let go. This is one that I have not buyer's remorse yet. I still like it and I still, you know, really like the position I got in at. And I think 
for one, if you're holding, continue to hold on to that stock and the people that you know are still looking at it, it potentially could be a buy if you like the way the situation where the new CEO is taking things. As I mentioned, we gave you a kind of couple of tough stocks and that's just the mix that we have reporting today. Are there any that you really feel more excited right about right now? Is it tech? Is it industrials? Is it healthcare? I mean, just kind of, you know, where do you think the big opportunity is? Yeah, I think the big opportunity is, is going to be a long-term story for a lot of these companies. I think if you look at Beyond Meat, um, that's going to be a longer play and a longer hold for people. Um, I think they're going to be near-term volatility especially if you look at, you know, how extended the S&P has been over the last, you know, you know, year to day potentially. So, so I think the long term, so if buyers are ready to stay in and stick in over the summer, um, there could be some, some happy buyers later on. All right, Delano Sapporo, thank you. We appreciate it. Good thank to see you. you as well today. Before we go, I want to draw your attention to shares of Warner Brothers Discovery. CNBC.com's Alex Sherman reporting WBD is targeting the beginning of Major League Baseball playoffs to debut a sports tier for its max streaming service with simulcast MLB and NBA, NHL, and NCAA games and use the Bleacher Report name shares up 3% on that news. That does it for us. Power Lunch is next. Tyler is getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.